On today's episode of GIST Healthcare Daily, GIST Healthcare co-founders Chaz Rhodes and Dr. Lisa Belomovich join me to talk about how the deteriorating economy and increased margin pressures are creating significant challenges for health systems. It's Monday, July 25th, and I'm Alex Olgan with GIST Healthcare Daily, where you get the headlines and health business and policy news in about 10 minutes. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating or a review. It helps other listeners find the show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the reward-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Health systems have had a challenging start to 2022. They're facing inflation and rising costs like the rest of the economy. But unlike other businesses, they're by and large not getting commensurate price increases in the form of higher reimbursement rates. And federal pandemic aid has mostly dried up, which was buoying hospital margins over the last two years. According to consulting firm Kaufman Hall, hospitals have reported five straight months of negative operating margins. And a Fitch ratings report from last week warns hospitals need to make, quote, transformational changes to the business model, unquote, to survive long term. GIST Healthcare co-founders Chaz Rhodes and Dr. Lisa Belomovich join me to talk about all these challenges and how health systems need to adapt. Lisa, Chaz, it's been a few months since our last conversation, and I'm so happy to have you both back on the podcast. Good to be with you this morning, Alex. Hi, Alex. I just ticked through a bunch of challenges health systems are facing. Do you think the higher labor and supply costs and reimbursement challenges are temporary or here to stay? I think these uh, labor challenges that uh, health systems are having now are part and parcel of the larger labor market situation in the economy. And I, and I don't think it's a temporary issue. There is the challenge of a very tight labor market. Uh, with a lot of competition, particularly at the entry level, uh, and with wages increasing everywhere across the economy, uh, a lot of hospitals and health systems are getting outcompeted on benefits and wages, which is an area where they always had an advantage. Uh, And so that's a macro level problem that they're having. And that is compounded by the COVID uh, experience of the last two years, during which a lot of clinical workers just got uh, completely burned out uh, by the uh, by the pressures of working in a you know in a in a very difficult COVID environment, and I think that caused a lot of people to sour on the prospect of working, particularly working in hospitals and and health system settings. Uh, and so I think our sense now, and what we're hearing everywhere across the industry, is this is probably more of a structural permanent issue 
than it is a temporary blip uh, in the in the staffing situation. And of course, labor cost is the largest line item on the hospital's operating expenses. And so if there's a permanent increase in the cost of labor for hospitals to be able to get the staff that they need, this is gonna force some tough decisions for health systems. When costs have gone up in the past, providers have turned to insurers for rate increases. Are those same tactics working this time around, Lisa? And, you know, the challenge that uh, providers, whether they're hospitals or doctors, find themselves in is that their contracts lag this rise in costs. You know, many of them aren't going to be renegotiating pair contracts for a year or two. Um, and what we have found is that it's not really easy, even if your contract term is up, to go to payers and say, hey, guess what? Nurses are costing me 25% more. I need a hefty rate increase. Uh, payers are saying, uh, not so fast. Our clients, employers, consumers are also in a tough position. And so those negotiations have been really contentious. And by and large, uh, you know, they're not returning what a health system would need in order to be able to make up uh, the dollars that they are spending on the cost side uh, with extra revenue through price. So you know, I think relief is not going to come uh, from health plans. What you two describe, rising costs but not rising revenues, seems like a fundamental challenge to a health system's business model, right, Chaz? So if you pull up to the sort of 30,000-foot level and you ask about the hospital economic model, if the cost structure has risen in some permanent way to a significant extent, which I think we believe that it has, and if you're beginning to see real revenue pressure, right? I mean, the lever that any hospital would have pulled 10 years ago if costs were going up was just to negotiate those into higher rates. As Lisa said, that's a lot harder now, and I think it's just going to keep getting harder, uh, both as the payer market consolidates and as uh, employers' ability to shoulder more costs uh, just diminishes. And then you add on top of that the fact that over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, we've, shift we've shifted a lot of cost onto individual consumers in the form of high deductibles, more you know, higher out-of-pocket, and so forth. And so... Uh, that's also beginning to have a dampening effect on demand uh, for discretionary health services. And many of those discretionary health services were areas where hospitals typically made a fairly healthy margin. Uh, and so we're starting to hear stories about, you know, uh, the volume is softening, particularly on the outpatient side, et cetera, et cetera. So if there's this larger thing going on in the economy, which is that household budgets are under strain because of high inflation, uh, and the payers aren't, the wholesale buyers, the payers and so forth, aren't willing to uh, pony up rate increases and the costs are going up. You can just sort of run that string out and imagine what's going to happen for health system margins over the next few years. It's not, it's not a pretty picture. Yeah, Chaz, you know, with putting together everything that you've said, it really challenges the old trope that healthcare is recession proof. Um, you know, we've always said that, you know, even if the economy is bad, people still get sick and they will need care. But just given how much out of pocket consumers are paying, um, you know, if those budgets are tight, you know, this year will really test whether or not uh, volume will remain strong as consumers are pinched. And just to add one... Uh, sort of misery loves companies. So just to add one more thing to the uh, to, to the mix here, 
interest rates going up probably for at least the next 12 months, right? As the Fed tries to engineer some kind of a, um, a cooling of inflation uh, and avoid us getting into a wage price spiral. Uh, and as interest rates go up, of course, almost every hospital and health system is not-for-profit and finances capital projects off of debt. Many of them have, uh, uh, you know, over the last several years of low interest rates, restructured their debt so that they've got, you know, fixed debt that's at a low interest rate. But for some who are going to have to go back to the market for new capital projects, like renovate the bed tower or, uh, or, or replace uh, uh, hospitals. So you think about California, where everybody still faces this seismic retrofit mandate. So there's literally billions of dollars of capital projects to be done in California. Um, it's going to be harder to generate what I would call asset-driven or facility-driven growth <laughs> uh, for health systems. It's, you know, the, the old world of let's just throw up a new bed tower and we'll fill it with patients uh, and that'll solve our revenue problems is gone, uh, at least in a, you know, for the next few years in a, in a higher interest rate environment. What are health systems doing to stop the bleed, so to speak? Are these temporary solutions or longer term? You know, I, I do think it's important that as health systems think not just about how do I get through the next quarter, but, you know, what do the next, you know, five years look like uh, from a margin perspective? They're not going to be able to cut their way out of this situation. Um, you know, tightening up staffing, you know, standardizing supplies. Uh, you know, tightening operations, all of those things that were in that playbook that you turn to when times got a little rough. Yeah, they will help, but I don't think they provide a long-term fix to a challenge. Say, you know, uh, my clinical labor costs are going to be 25% higher than they were in 2019. I don't think it's a long-term fix, but, but to be slightly provocative to our friends in the health system community, I do think we're at a moment where both in, on short-term issues like cost-cutting and productivity and so forth and longer-term issues, we have hit a moment where hospitals are going to have to walk the walk that they've been talking for quite some time. And it, so and it, in a couple of ways, one is we've seen a lot of consolidation, right, over the, and a lot of criticism of consolidation over the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, there's been relatively little success compared to other industries where you see consolidation happen, there's been relatively little success at capturing corporate value or you know, the kind of standardization systemness, um, let's all run one operation instead of just a portfolio of, of separate uh, cost structures. There's still a lot of room to run on those, on those core corporate values, systemness, uh, 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 sorts of things. And so I think there's real work to do. Of course, every system has said, you know, in the face of criti criticism of consolidation, oh, yes, of course, we're, we're becoming more efficient and we're lowering costs and so forth. But the reality is, if you scratch underneath the surface, it's really been uh, sort of anemic efforts to do that. So I, so I think there's going to have to be some real uh, attention to that. And then I think they're going to have to walk the walk on some of the longer term issues. Lisa, so do you think these economic pressures will be the straw that breaks the camel's back to finally push providers to actually make serious efforts to change the reimbursement structure and move to value-based care? We've uh, talked for over a decade that, 
you know, changes in contracting, changes in health policy, the move to value um, would push health systems to change how they contract, get off fee-for-service and um, take more uh, total cost of care risk. It largely hasn't happened because there hasn't been the motivation to change the model. And for those who really tried to do it, the contracts weren't there. Uh, we could be at a point where the need to bring down the cost structure of care delivery and labor in particular could force that move to value. Keeping patients outside of the hospital, delivering care in lower cost settings, um, if this will provide a real platform for systems who want to make that change. Um, but it's going to be hard work, you know, not only doing the engineering of what that kind of a health system needs to look like, but also making sure that you are paid in a way that supports it, whether it's risk or, you know, rebalancing, you know, where uh, the money is coming from, you know, right now, I think we're still at a place that if you made those changes and move everything outpatient today, um, you know, you might be doing the right thing for the system, the right thing for patients in a lot of cases, uh, but you're definitely taking a big haircut on the reimbursement side uh, if you're not aligning all of those steps together. I think the theme song increasingly for hospitals and health systems is going to be, we need to figure out a way to do less expensive things in lower cost settings using lower wage workers uh, and deliver those at a lower price in the market. And if you add all those things up, another way to say that is we need to transition to value. And so God bless all of the organizations out there who have been fighting that fight for the last 10 years. It has been an uphill battle to find payment for doing those things, because of course, the last thing you want to do if you're running a traditional hospital model is move care into lower cost settings with less expensive staff. Uh, if you're only going to be met with, uh, you know, with contracts from payers that are traditionally structured, and so you're actually just giving away margin. So I think what has to happen to square the circle is there needs to be a new conversation between uh, providers and payers and probably importantly employers about how do we actually build a reward structure that allows hospitals to do the thing that they really need to do now, which is less expensive care and lower cost settings with less expensive staff. Are those conversations happening yet? So they're starting to happen between regional health systems that have uh, got the capability to deliver on that value proposition and local employers. Um, uh, who are interested in that in that value proposition? I think there are still loads and loads of unhelpful middleman pressures in, in the sitting between that and and reality, right? And in particular, what I mean is traditional payer contracts and all of the people who sell health insurance to employers, namely brokers, traditional brokers, right? Who, they, you know, there's just a paradox of healthcare for a long time has been everybody benefits when price goes up, right? The, because everybody's percentage gets bigger. Uh, and so as the pie grows, we're all just eat, you know, we're eating a bigger and bigger slice of pie. Somebody's gonna have to get a smaller slice of pie. And it's probably those middlemen somewhere in there are gonna end up with a, with a smaller slice of pie. Vertical integration, particularly on the health plan side, complicates this too. Um, you know, I think any health plan would say, hey, we would love to see more care moving 
out of the hospital, lower cost settings delivered at a, you know, a lower price to us. But at the same time as health plans acquire physicians, own surgery centers and other outpatient assets, you know, they're asking themselves the question, you know, should I really be enabling health systems to do this and profit off of this transition? Or maybe it's just simpler to move my beneficiaries to care assets that are owned by us, you know, which is a real existential threat um, for hospitals, health systems, and a lot of physician groups. Really good point. And, and I think what often gets missed in these conversations, and I think I'm probably as guilty as anybody of doing this, is we often focus on the big relationships between payers and providers and employers. And what we're missing is the, what I might call the industrial economics inside the health system. So there are vested interests that have, that are not super excited about the proposition of lower cost care with lower cost people in lower cost settings. So in, you know, one word for those might be the guilds, right? So let me just give you two examples. One is uh, we're, you know, given the nursing sh uh, shortage and the, and the difficulty that people are having filling vacancies, everybody's having this conversation now about we need to move to team-based care in, in the hospital, right? We need to go back to hiring LPNs. We need to move away from the all RN model. We need to maybe care a little bit less about uh, how highly credentialed uh, our nursing staff is. But of course, the nursing uh, guild is you know, fiercely opposed to those sorts of moves and, and still you know, fighting the fight of all BSN, you know, whatever it is. Um, similarly, physicians not super excited about, uh, about changing scope of practice and allowing pharmacists and nurse practitioners and, uh, and other uh, caregivers do the things that highly paid physicians used to do. That's why specialty societies exist. Right? They exist for two reasons. One is to, to transmit uh, knowledge about clinical innovation, and the other is to defend the economic interests of the, of the specialty. And so they're not super excited about it either. So there, there are these um, labor economics going on inside healthcare that I think are going to make this a hard transition, even though it needs to happen. Are you aware of any health systems that are doing any part of this well? We get this all the time. As you can imagine, you know, who's doing it well? Show me who's doing it well. And I guess it depends a little bit what your definition of well is. So certainly there are lots of people who are chipping around the edges of all of this stuff. I mean, there are lots of organizations you can point to, progressive uh, physician groups and hospitals and health systems who have moved to more value, who have moved care into lower cost settings. You're seeing uh, a faster move uh, on some of that stuff now that there's been so much disruption in the market and thanks to COVID. So the, the rise of hospital at home, uh, the rise of uh, remote monitoring, uh, telemedicine, all of these sorts of things you can clearly point to as a way to, to do lower cost things to people in lower cost settings. Um, but has anybody really strung together all the pieces and figured out how to create the health system in the future? No, not yet. I mean, even if we just take one element of this, and that is, you know, thinking about the cost of clinical labor, you know, there's a short-term set of solutions that everyone has to pursue right now. You know, how do we, you know, deliver competitive comp? How do we wean our system off of travel and agency labor? You know, what kinds of benefits do we need to retain people 911? But that doesn't solve the problem of 
you know, what's the care model of the future that does all of the things that Chaz was talking about of delivering, you know, lower cost care and lower cost settings with lower cost staff. I mean, those are big, big, hairy challenges for health systems that require you to, you know, really rethink, you know, how we do things, create new pipelines to deliver the talent that we need, provide the tools, you know, technology, you know, in some cases, maybe even things like artificial intelligence to support, you know, care delivery and integrate that into the care model. I think it's really, really hard for a lot of systems when they're focused on today's economics and getting through this quarter and next to invest not just money, but mind share and political capital in those long-term challenges and deciding to pull the trigger on doing something different that we will see the benefits of, you know, in five years. Okay, so if I'm a CEO or an executive team of a health system, and I know making these changes is going to be long before I see rewards, how do I do it? How do I um, get my board on board? Well, I think step one is invite us to come talk to your board. (laughs) We'd love to come be part of the conversation. So, uh, you know, all kidding aside, you know, drop us a line, let us know if we can, if we can be helpful on it. I think it is about you know, whether it's us or somebody else, I think it is about being very clear with the board about what some of these larger issues are. Very often the conversation gets tied up in sort of rote uh, discussions of, um, you know, the bond rating and specific capital projects and specific philanthropic efforts and so forth. And I think we're increasingly seeing that boards are hungry for the big picture. And, you know, what's going on here? And, and they bring their own experiences from other industries and from other walks of life to that conversation in a way that I think can be very helpful in guiding, uh, in guiding executive teams toward the change that needs to happen. That was Chaz Rhodes and Dr. Lisa Belomovich, co-founders of GIST Healthcare. You can reach them for speaking inquiries at contact at gisthealthcare.com. Thanks for listening to GIST Healthcare Daily. I'm Alex Olkin. You can check out more insights on healthcare business and policy news on gisthealthcare.com. GIST Healthcare Daily is an independent production of GIST Healthcare. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.